Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Yeah, the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. The year is 1990 and 2020. And just when you thought you were out, we keep on pulling you back in. That's right. We're talking about The Godfather 3 and The Godfather 3, The Death of Michael Corleone. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm Paul Shear. And this is the show where we normally are talking about the best films ever made. We're putting together a big, giant list. But this week, we're doing something a little bit different. This is a bonus episode where we're going to be focusing on one film, revisiting a trilogy that we threatened to revisit a little while ago. And there's very good reason. Amy, we're talking about The Godfather 3, or as it's now called... The Godfather Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone. Oh, let me put that punctuation in there for you. The Godfather, comma, Coda, colon, The Death of Michael Corleone. All right. Um, it is recently just come out on VOD and in theaters. Francis Ford Coppola has said that he made over 363 different cuts in this film to create uh, something that is a little bit more to the way that he wanted to end this franchise, this trilogy, this story. And uh, we thought it was a great time to take a look at this film one more time. Yeah, and we got a really awesome guest that we're excited to bring onto the show in the second half. The one and only Talia Shire. Um, this is a really great interview, and she is such uh, a tremendous movie fan. And it was just great to talk to her because I do believe that even if she wasn't a guest, I would say this, she might be the best part of the Godfather 3, Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone. I think, comma, you may be correct, period. <laughs> um, so let's treat this kind of like as a special episode, Amy. We'll kind of do a little bit of what we normally do, uh, a little bit of a shorter conversation, but uh, you want to maybe unspool it, comma, Coda, The Death of the Godfather Unspooled Trilogy? <laughs> Why, yes, I do. The year is 1990, and Saddam Hussein orders the Iraq invasion of neighboring Kuwait, and the U.S. participates as part of Operation Desert Shield. The U.S. enters a recession, and depending on how you view the world, 
via the Mandela effect. This is the year that Nelson Mandela was released for prison and becomes a leader of the African National Congress, or he died in prison. Either way that you look at it, your Bernstein is Mary Bernstein. President George Bush and Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev sign a historic agreement to end the production of chemical weapons, and the hot movies include Goodfellas, Home Alone, Edward Scissorhands, and today's film, The Godfather Part 3. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? The Godfather Part 3, the third in the trilogy that comes out 16 years after the second film in, um, in the franchise. Francis Ford Coppola in 1990 decided to resurrect Michael Corleone to kill him off. Now, Michael, who is still played by Al Pacino, is 60 years old and he is still the head of the Corleone family. But instead of enjoying that life of power and money that he earned, instead of, you know, having some good times like his dad got to have, Michael is alone and he's sad and he's rotten from decades of guilt. He's still the center of the party, but there's something kind of pathetic and off about him. Now, Michael is trying to go straight. He's trying to link the Corleone fortune to the most sainted organization on Earth, the Vatican, only to discover that the Vatican is just as corrupt as all of his buddies who are now sleeping with the fishes. Lots of our familiar cast is back from the, from the original trilogy, including Talia Shire, who I'm so excited to talk to. But a lot of the attention when this film came out was put on the new people. You've got Andy Garcia as Michael Corleone's hot-headed nephew, Vincent, and you've got Sofia Coppola, his daughter, as Michael's daughter, Mary. Um, and the big question in this film is for Michael, like, what has all of this been for? You know, why have you gone through this bloodshed and this agony and these slow-motion shots of oranges bouncing on pavement? And I think if you asked Michael, he would say he did it all for the people that he loved, which makes the number one song on the charts when this film came out on Christmas Day, 1990, the perfect, sincere, and sad ballad to go along with your holiday trip to see this movie. It is by the king of the roller rink, Stevie B, and it is called Because I Love You. If you should feel that I don't really care And that you're starting to lose ground Just let me reassure you you can count on me and that I'll always be around. Wow, don't remember that song at all. You know, Amy, I have a shocking uh, admission to tell you that I believe this was the first Godfather I ever saw. Oh, um, you jawsed it. Yeah, because... Um, I remember it so clearly. My dad took me to go see The Godfather 3 on New Year's Eve. Uh, we were hanging out together. Um, my parents were divorced. And he's like, we'll stay up until midnight by going to see like a big, long movie. And I was like, that's a great idea. And we went to the theater on New Year's Eve night to watch this. And then when the movie was over, it was only about an hour until midnight. And that was the way that we passed the night away um, as a kid. And I remember really, really loving this movie, like, because I felt like I was watching something a little bit more adult. It seemed so violent to me. I remember um, that scene where Andy Garcia shoots the guy in the head. That was like, it really scarred me. I was like, oh my God, I, I had not seen like violence like that. I was a younger kid at this point. I wasn't even in high school, you know, um, probably like in sixth grade or something. And, and uh, just that there were a couple things that really stuck out to me at the end of the film where uh, Sofia Coppola is, is killed and and Michael's on the steps screaming like these images were burned into my brain and I probably watched it maybe like two or three more times over the years but 
as I watched the other two, I slowly just got this one out of my purview. It's sort of like I I learned about James Bond through Roger Moore, and then I was like, oh, Sean Connery. Okay. You know, and then and then you start to you start to kind of I watch more of those, less of these. Uh, you know, so I mean, how about you? Like, how did you come to Godfather Three? You know, I think Godfather Three is how I came to the franchise, but not because I yeah. saw the movie. Okay. Just because I remember everybody saying how bad it was when it came out. You know, I remember this talk, like the greatest movie ever made had made a third film and everybody was really mad about it. And the director's daughter was in it and everybody was really mad about that. And I was never like going to be allowed to see this movie at the time. But, you know, hearing that this shameful thing had happened to a franchise that like my parents had, I I suppose, like seen and meant a lot and it meant a lot to them. And so- it was surprising to me to get older and actually begin to watch the Godfather series to realize that wasn't really completely it. I mean, this is a movie that got seven Oscar nominations when it came out. It was a big deal. It was taken seriously. And so to get to watch it for myself, like being warned, like Sofia Coppola is in it and it's going to be really embarrassing. When I finally did see it, maybe 10 years ago, like Mm -hmm. I, I guess I waited a long time. I was like, it's not that bad. What's everybody mad about? Why is everybody so upset? Yeah, you know, I was thinking about this last night when I was watching it. I think that culturally, we have gone through a shift. We are more prone to disappointment in our film franchises to a certain extent now, where I think at that point, it felt like, how could you touch perfection? And now all we do is touch perfection. And we are, you know, messing with things and tweaking things or revisiting characters and in the grand scheme of that and that kind of world, I mean, we're talking about the redo of a film that was made in 1990. It's now 2020. So we're, we're still tinkering. But even without the redo, on the scale of the reimaginings, the revisitations, the 20 years away, and now let's do these characters again, it's not that bad. I think The Godfather 3, as is before the redo, stands fine. It's not as good as The Godfather 1 and 2, but there are some really interesting elements of the story and the characters that I think are are good for this coda. Now, watching the movie last night and, and seeing the re, uh, redone version of it, I have to say, I really enjoyed my watch. I kind of was hesitant going in because I think the other two were still a little bit fresh in my mind, and I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I was going to because I think you know, Godfather 3 and Ishtar are movies that really live in my brain as being like, they're the worst things ever made. Yeah, and like, same. Oh. And I've never even seen Ishtar. So no, neither have I. I really need Same. To. By the way, let's put it on the show. Um, <laughs> and that, Heaven's Gate, we can do a whole miniseries of the worst, in question yeah. mark. Uh, <laughs> right, like but, the movies I have been told are the worst movies of all time, so I've never seen them. I never saw Waterworld. Oh, I've seen Waterworld. Uh, but post <laughs> the, the Postman is way worse. Waterworld is not that bad. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because I the charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. 
like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. But I mean, what did you think in the of the redo? Well, you know, from what you're describing, putting the reaction of the adults in the room in context to 1990, I mean, was the Godfather Part Three like their Sonic the Hedgehog is too skinny? Where they're like, well, this Sonic the Hedgehog is atrocious. We don't no, like it. We are thumbs I, downing this. I absolutely. I mean, I would I would argue that it's the Sex in the City two more than it is Sonic the Hedgehog. Like because it's sort of like you've betrayed me. I love these characters. Like Sex in the City when that first movie came out. Um. The women in my life who love Sex and the City, it was like watching them see Star Wars. And I loved it. I loved seeing my wife and her friends just be pumped. June, I think, saw that movie like three or four times in the theater. And then when we went to go see Sex and the City 2, the utter disappointment. These characters that they loved and the show and everything. And the first movie was so good. How could they have let them down? Like, you know, and uh, and I think that that may have been part of this issue. I mean, one of the biggest missing pieces of this movie, and I still think it's a problem, is Robert Duvall. He didn't do the movie famously because he didn't didn't get the money that he thought he deserved. Uh, Al Pacino, I think, got a, a tremendous amount of money. And uh, I think Robert Duvall just kind of played his cards like, I'm going to hold out. And they said, OK, well, we're going to move on. And then you replace him with George Hamilton. And you don't really explain who George Hamilton is. And then all of a sudden you're watching this movie and you're like, oh, that's reminiscent of this. And I think this movie, that's my big note for this movie, is this movie feels like they couldn't get all the pieces that they wanted together. And they kind of just thought like, well, we, we can get over this hump. We can get over this hump. And I think that those pieces actually pulled it down. And I think that, that those pieces are minimized in this redo. But I also think that's what people were reacting to. Like, where, where are these characters I love? You're revisiting some, but not all. You're introducing people in. You're pulling them away. Bridget Fonda's in for a second. I love Bridget Fonda. And I'm like, oh. I but, do too, wait. although she is the journalist who sleeps with her subject. My number one pet peeve, female yeah. journalist. Can't always do well, <laughs> Hold on, Amy. It's She didn't sleep with her subject. She slept with an associate of her subject, her subject with Michael Corleone. <laughs> and uh, she just was enamored with uh, Andy Garcia. Um, but I was like, why is she not in this movie anymore? I was so bummed out. And I was like, when I saw her, I was so excited. And then I was so bummed. I love Bridget Fonda. I, I know that she kind of like semi-retired. So more Bridget I love Fonda. Her too. I love her too. But you know, you know what I'm realizing as we're talking about it? Is that I think the best analogy um, of our day is that this is the Force Awakens, because it takes the scenes that you like so much from the first one. You know, like here's the big event at the beginning. Here's everybody dancing, and you know, here's the Godfather at the center of it, and how how everybody's treating him. And you get those repeated scenes. You know, the the moments that you love, the dancing to the theme. You get the man in the chair and the old and the sunshine at the end of the film. You. So it's taking what you know and love and then remixing it slightly. And I would also say that you're taking some of the joy out of it. I think that not, I think it's a conscious choice to put them in that 
that beautiful palatial New York City building is so um, small compared to on the on you know on off of Lake Tahoe or in the backyard in the first film. Like they're outdoors, the characters are, are living in this real environment, and I feel like there is something claustrophobic about this film. They're in tight spaces. Even everything in New York is a tight space, and even though that that house is gigantic, but it still feels. Um, like the walls are closing in on this family. They have, they're, they're morphing. And, and, you know, your central character is trying to escape the life. And I think something like The Sopranos, where you follow Tony all the way to his end, I don't know, question mark, um, he isn't trying to get out. And I think that maybe that also is, is a feeling of this. It's kind of the way that people reacted to what Ryan Johnson did with Luke Skywalker. That's not my Luke, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, it is your Luke. And I actually think that this is, I do believe that Coppola had the right idea for what Michael wanted to be and become. And I think it was smart to age him and grow the family. And and I think to create that relationship with Talia Shire in this is really interesting. A lot of interesting ideas, but so much, so many ideas. I think that Luke Skywalker analogy is perfect, honestly, because I I love a darker Luke Skywalker. And oh, they are both too. like people who took the mantle of heroism reluctantly. Mm-hmm. And they were born into it in ways they didn't completely even understand or they fought against until they like really accepted bits about their father in his role. And then to have them at the end of their life look back and wonder why and wonder like how much evil did they also put into the world as you know. I, I love yeah. that mapping. And I mean, to me, I really appreciate it when a filmmaker like Ryan Johnson makes those hard choices that piss people off. I feel like there's integrity in that. And so, yeah, I get it. I get I get being like, oh, my God, it's a Christmas movie. We're going to go see The Godfather Part 3. And wait, I want Michael Corleone to be like the boss. Goodfellas is out. I right. want the boss. I want somebody yeah. who's enjoying his life. And to be given this, it, it's not a Christmas movie unless you're like really into the martyrdom aspect of Christianity, which this film is like heavy with every oh, frame heavy. of it. I mean, this film, I think, is a good one. Like if I was if I was a college professor, you know, or if I was even a high school film professor and I was like, I want you class to like tell me how visuals advance a film. I feel like this is a good film for that. You know, it's so heavy in the visual imagery of like. Mary's toppling off shelves and, you know, dolls getting stabbed by their dad at puppet shows and all of this foreshadowing, like building up to the end of the scene. Like this is a movie with, I think, a lot more thought in it. I mean, some of those things I roll my eyes at because they're a little heavy, but but they're there. They're there. Like you're allowed to do that. I think you're allowed to do that in an epic to make these like expressionistic choices. I mean, look, this movie doesn't make any bones about the fact that it is an opera. I mean, this mm-hmm. is the film is treated like an opera. And and then the backdrop of the last 30, 40 minutes is an opera. Um, but when I saw that, I was like, oh, this is what he's going for. This is the kind of performances, this is the kind of um tone. And and you know, as much as we joke and we even open the episode with like, every time I think I'm out, they keep on pulling me back in. It's not a line like we've found with many of our movies, that is overly done. It's actually very well performed. Like like Al Pacino obviously has his like Pacino-isms. And in this movie, he's not overly, I don't think he's overly done. It's not even that much of the hoo-ha. There's a couple of moments, you know, but I think like that moment in the in the hospital where he's like yelling at everybody for, you know, for when they kill Zaza, like you get why he's angry. 
But for the most part, he is this kind of, um, there's a charm to him still. There's an energy to him. He seems a little bit broken in parts. I think the performance of, I think his performance is actually very good. Um, I think where this movie fails a lot of people, and I'm just going to be honest about it, is the writing. I think the writing is a little uh, all over the place. And I think that Sofia Coppola takes a brunt of bad writing. Um, and and there's that one scene in particular on the roof, which was the scene that many people focused on, you know, for stilted dialogue for Sofia Coppola. I don't think she's actually, well, I can't remember the original one to to really give you a a, a beat by beat comparison, but I think she's edited much better in this film. I think they jump into scenes later, they get out of scenes earlier. Um, I think that in this time of Kardashians and this time of like I think you've seen this character now in real life. I I there's more of a a Sofia Coppola a Mary, I should say, a Mary archetype in our world. Like I was like, oh, I get this. Like when she's presenting the money and things like that. I'm like, oh yeah, I I've seen this. I, I so mean, it actually, just say it. She's Ivanka Trump. She is Ivanka you, Trump. You My are. My dad is a powerful, rich yes, man. I'm yes. the face that makes his company look nice. Yes, look you me. are right. I, yeah, I mean, she's like a what? She looks like a teenager. Maybe yeah, no, she's yes. in college, being like, here's a million billion dollars. Yes. He's using her in a way to rehabilitate his image, but also she's like, you know, his pride and joy and he loves her more than anything else in the family. And and she's conflicted. And maybe if she like grew up and, you know, lived to the end of the movie, she might become more evil. Who knows? Probably. Maybe. I love yeah, I love that idea. And the and that like so I think that there are moments where, like I said, like where she's burdened with some pretty heavy dialogue. I think there's some kind of weird weird choices. I, I don't love the choice of Andy Garcia and her having a relationship. It seems a little bit It's oddly. a little close to home, right? Yeah, and it feels like, like yeah. Al Pacino is unfazed by it. Like, he is like, don't mess around with my daughter because they'll come after her. It's not like that's gross, which is it, which it is. They're uh, first cousins? Yeah, I, I mean, mean that, like, he's Sonny's son. He's Sonny's son and she like yeah i mean they are of the same blood it's yeah, weird like maybe it's like an old maybe maybe in the old country like uh, in, yeah. seven, in the 1700s but in like modern day manhattan when they're like hobnobbing with billionaires it's a little weird i also thought that was a moment to draw a line between those two characters of garcia and like and pacino like by the way i think andy garcia is pretty good in this movie like i like this energy and tone from him we you know i think we last saw him in uh in the um, uh, stand and deliver, stand and deliver, yeah, and I I like this performance. I think he really captures something, and it makes you. I remember when I saw it, I wanted to see more of him. I'm like, oh, where does that character go? And I I think that that character, it's like, oh, well, then this would be like, what would happen if Sonny took over the family, and what would that be in the '90s? It's a much more interesting, or not? An, that's a an interesting way to continue the film, but again. They play yeah. in that area, then they go back, and it's like there's a lot of things they're touching on, but they're not really diving. They get in this church, Michigash, uh, which just yeah. feels like a little bit messy at points. I mean, Andy Garcia could walk right into Goodfellas, and you wouldn't blink. Right? Oh yeah, oh like, yeah. He could just like he could permeate between boundaries. He could straddle mm-hmm. all worlds. My favorite part of his performance, and maybe you're right. Maybe this is exactly the kind of moment in The Godfather Three that speaks to it. At, for its direction over its script. But it's when um, they're all at the opera. And by the way, like I mean, you have to think like 
if Michael Corleone's son was like, I'm going to become an opera star. And he's like, that's really weird. It's a sudden left turn. And he's like, yeah. And I'm on stage three months later. I mean, they bought him that opera, right? Like they had to buy him that opera. Like they had to be like, we're going to give you some money. Put my son in an opera. Like the world doesn't work like that, right? Amy, I, I seriously have no idea what the timeline of this movie is. I mean, I don't know if that's part of the redo, but this movie feels like it takes place over the course of two weeks. But it also, if you look at it logically, it could be two years. Like, because from Michael being so, Michael can't walk. And then the next scene, he's like, bop, 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 da, 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 dang, you know, looking great. <laughs> and uh, just, an, uh, just a testament to Al Pacino with that full head of hair. He looks so good in life now. And then... I think that was my first real exposure to him. Like to see him like that, I was like, he really, the makeup is great across the board for everybody in this movie. (laughs) They really do embrace these characters. It looks great. That's true. But what I was going to say is, you know, when the whole family goes to the opera and the opera again is like telling the whole story of this movie for like the third time in visual form, you know, Mm -hmm. like there's this man and everybody's in trouble and everybody's mad and there's betrayers. There's a moment in the opera where like one of the dudes on stage fake bites another dude's ear, you know, just know, like Vincent did to Zaza. And then it cuts to Vincent and Andy Garcia just gives this little sarcastic chuckle. And that little sarcastic chuckle of like recognition, I think is my favorite part of the film. That, I love that. I, you know, I want to talk about the direction of this too, because that end sequence, that operatic sequence is really beautifully directed. That gun down scene in Vegas or Atlantic City is so poorly directed. I don't know how this movie juxtaposes these things. Like what happened between those two scenes like that? They reuse shots like the room in there. It's like it's I mean, did you find that the movie like alternately goes between things that look and feel really rich and full and then others that just feel incredibly flat? Oh, that's interesting to to compare those two scenes like that. Because if there's a mastery, there's yeah. a mastery to Zaza's death where, you know, Garcia's on the horse and the way that looks and everything is going on. And and even even Mary's death, like there is artistry there. But then this big, big scene feels so TV movie. I think this movie at points, maybe it's because the way it's cut, like there's a lot of just fading out, getting out and, you know, just quick cuts out Um make it feel a little bit more made for TV. But that, that scene in particular, I was like, why is this, why is this so sloppy? I, I don't know. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Yeah. And and maybe because it's also a scene that feels so familiar from other films. I mean, doesn't that seem mm. like it would be in a Batman movie or yeah, like a thousand it, other action so films? Broad. It's kind of like so insert, broad. insert yeah. giant betrayal here. And maybe there is something in the fact that, and now I'm just absolutely giving him every every benefit of the doubt, that he is having a contrast between like the modern business and like the history and the ancientness of 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 Italy, like that he's trying to say like there's no soul here anyways. Mm. I don't know if that's true, um, but I actually love the ending. I actually really love Sofia Coppola's moment. I love the way when she gets shot, she just yeah. looks at him and she says "Dad" in that yeah. kind of small voice. I think that has a grander and a and a tragedy to it that is perfect for this film. And I didn't realize, you know, that at the time when they shot that film, everybody on set knew that this was Coppola's catharsis, that he had lost his other son, uh, Gio, a few years ago. Like his his son Gio had died from a speedboating accident. And so to have his other child play a martyred daughter of his character in the film, I mean, 
everyone actually knew what was happening. You know, his wife said she knew what was doing. She said that people were telling her that letting Sophia die in this film was like to help her father work through his emotions about his other son's death was kind of a form of of child abuse. And that Sophia knew what was happening. She was like, you know, I knew, you know, it, I knew, but it was my choice. And that whole family in this film that I think coming together like that at the end for Coppola, like I can imagine how hard that was when then you release it and a lot of people are like, that's eh, kind of garbage. Yeah, I mean, even in the old cut, or at least I, I remember that end being what I really remember, like that that last 30, 40 minutes. And then, it, and then you know, and it really, this movie really ends on that moment now. The redo really makes it end on that moment. And you have this like kind of postscript scene of Michael sitting in the chair in the courtyard, like the men that we've seen in these palatial Italian homes throughout the series and, and the way that he was even talking to that one man earlier on. And he's lived a long life and he's completely alone. And that image is so much more striking than the way it was originally presented, which was him dying. You watch him die, right? Like the last scene of The Godfather 3, the original cut, was him falling off that chair. Here, they have to get out really quick, but there is something to make it work because they're cut away from it. It's so much more um, dramatic. It is Just to see him and go like, oh, this man has lived another 20, 30 years with this grief and and now everyone's away from him. Like everyone has moved. And yeah. that to me was really like, oh, it really got me. It really like that. Like, and I think it it actually does a service to the entire film. Like, you know, he says in the first line, you know, like, or you know, to Kate, uh, to Diane Keaton, like, I'm just I've been doing this to protect my family. And the one thing and he and, and he fails. And he fails in the grandest way. Oh, it's it's so um it's so upsetting. And, yeah. and she's great. And she's I love great that, in that scene. And I love that they, you know, trimmed a couple seconds off that ending now for this for yeah. this new cut where you don't see him die. Because I think not seeing him die, seeing him that he you're right, that he lived with all of this and kept continues going, to. Can continues to. And that it will not change. To me, that's that's even more horrible than watching him slump. Just and what I think it does too is it paints a picture of all these other men that we have seen throughout the history of the trilogy in these Italian estates, these older men. What tragedies have they lived through? It almost connects you more to the entire film. Yeah, or to Don Altobello. Yes. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time because messes happen because. A charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh, hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.
Coppola did a really good job here. He cuts about 13 minutes out of the film. He, you know, moves around the scene. So now the film really opens with the scene with the Cardinal. It sets the premise of the film up. I think that the K and Michael stuff really plays. I think that Sofia Coppola, I think you can't reshoot the film. Right, but you can make it better, and you can make it. In, and I think in a time where we are seeing even Apocalypse Now redo longer added scenes, this, uh, or you know, or George Lucas getting into Star Wars, m- more things, you know, this that he does an incredible job of restraint, and I think hearing the notes and seeing how he can improve it and tell the story a little bit better because it's not like he wasn't allowed to tell the story that he wanted to tell. He, I think, just was a little and. I say it, I say this with love, a little high on his own supply. I think he thought he could get away with doing a lot at that point and bringing it all in and everyone would go, yes, this all works. And it didn't. It didn't. Uh, but yet the performances, and there's enough stuff there, and he just was really smart about, all right, how do I take all this great stuff and then in, in, and put it in a little bit of a tighter package? And I, I do think it worked. I, I, I really... I was in. I was in for that two hours and 30 minutes without any hesitation. Me too. Me too. When it ended, I was like, I really enjoyed this rewatch. And yeah. I, and I and I will say, you know, as some of my final words on it, I will stick up for Sofia Coppola as well in this me film. Too. I me too. I think she has a real freshness. She feels like a real girl to me. She feels like a young teenage girl. You know, she acts like a real teenage girl. She doesn't act actressy. There's nothing false about her performance. I think she's good. And I'm also grateful that the experience of doing this movie and then getting attacked by everybody, you know, most uh, in a way, really just because people are sick of the nepotism too. Or they they were like, they didn't like the nepotism of it. Mm. Um, even though she was like the fourth or fifth person, she was kind of like a desperation pick when everybody yeah. else kept like backing out, getting sick. Having yeah, Winona Ryder was going to be the original actress, right? Yeah, it was Julia Roberts first and then she had a scheduling problem and then Madonna wanted to do it, but then Coppola thought she was too old. And then Rebecca Schaefer um, was going oh, to audition yeah, and then she was murdered. Life. And then Winona Ryder was going to do it, but then had nervous exhaustion and dropped it at the last minute. And then he's like, well, I have this daughter and she understands. And, you know, for her to do that for her father, knowing all the layers of what it meant to her father and come out of it attacked. And mm. then have this realization, you know what? I don't want to be an actress. I want to direct. We got her. We got her as a director, which I think is maybe Coppola's greatest gift to all of us. I, I totally agree. I, I think uh, if you've not watched it in a while, it's really worth the fun rewatch of these characters. And I think it, as you hear in our interview in a little bit with Talia Shire, like there was a lot of thought and a lot of love put into every stage of this. And I almost feel like when you are trying to wrap something up, you're trying to do something, you're trying to do so many things. And I almost feel like this version of The Godfather would have been played so much better as like an FX miniseries, right? Like if if Coppola at the time said, you know, I'm not going to make a movie. I'm going to do a six episode series because I think it just feels like there's a lot in there. And I think you want to build to it a little bit slower or at least I, I could live with the characters a little bit more. I don't mind living with the characters because they, they seem so well done. I, I just, I, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised at my reaction to it all, but I, I am a fan of Sofia Coppola. I really wish they would have chased after Andy Garcia originally, but I also say that when you're making a movie about legacy and about a patriarch, what a smart idea to have Coppola go in now when he is thinking of these things, when mm-hmm. he has lived a life. You know, this is 30 years ago. So 
you know, what has changed? He's definitely bringing something totally different to this film. And I think that rings true. Um, and and it's bold for someone to go back in and, and not admit mistakes, but be able to look at a film with a completely different perspective and say, I can tell this story more truthfully because now I've, I understand it. I recognize it. You know, well, Amy, like, I think that, you know, right now the film is getting pretty good reviews. Like this redo, people are 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 into it, but we have alluded to it. It is part of the show. We have to see one of the bad reviews of the original Godfather 3. Because I think that the only reason why we're here right now is because of these bad reviews. So uh, before we get into Talia, like, let's, let's, let's sit in the stew that is a bad review of this film. Because I'm sure it's going to be deliciously uh, pointed. Okay, let's do it. Actually, first, like the reviews for this recut version have been pretty good. Although I love that Owen uh, Gleiberman from Variety, he said that it's a good thing that Coppola didn't rename his earlier film Apocalypse, comma, now and then, colon, the cracking up of Colonel Period Kurtz. <laughs> <laughs> but now let's talk some trash. I pulled a bad review from 1990 from the Washington Post. And here is what the Washington Post said. Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather Part 3 isn't just a disappointment. It is a failure of heartbreaking proportions. In supplying the final chapter of the saga, it also solely is what came before. It makes you wish it had never been made. Coppola's star has dimmed significantly over the 16 years since the last Godfather film, but to see his third installment is to watch it fall out of the sky altogether. The Godfather Part 3 is the work of an artist estranged from his talent, a lost soul. The characters that carry over from his earlier films bear little resemblance to themselves. Michael is a businessman now, and in divesting himself from his criminal interests, he he has lost what made him interesting, his murderous darkness. It's nearly impossible to see how the relentlessly brutal middle-aged man at the end of part two could have grown into the relaxed, polished, easy-moving older one we see here. Keaton suffers tremendously from having no real function except to nag Michael for his past sins, and as Mary, Sofia Coppola is hopelessly amateurish. If that great earlier artist ever had a chance of resurfacing, it was here, but he didn't. And you can't help but see The Godfather Part 3 as his headstone. This guy buried him 30 years ago, so I can understand why he was like, I'm clawing my way out. Yeah, well, you know, I also think that we've also come to accept different types of leading men. And I think that this Michael Corleone is more relatable in our time now, like, obviously antiheroes is nothing new and he was an antihero back then, but I feel like there is, it. again, this movie makes me think back of the other two and I think that that's a good finale. It goes, oh, well, we only knew Marlon Brando as this kind of a character, but yet we saw how De Niro played Brando in two and he wasn't always like that. He did evolve and, and going back to the Ryan Johnson comparison, yeah, I get why he is like this now as a 60-year-old man. He's not Zaza, he's not Andy Garcia, he is a patriarch, and I, I feel like we've seen it, but we don't want to acknowledge it because we don't think it's as cool, but yet that is the lifespan of it. You know, you want to see him kind of huffing and puffing and making deals, but, you know, this is also, I think, signaling the end of, like, the the interesting mafia, right? The 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 Really, the hands in the community, I mean, that's always about the drugs and things like that nature, like, that's a big deal in all mafia stories, but... Um, but there's also this idea like like New York is now out of control and there's other gangs coming in and there's mm-hmm. other things like the, there's a time that's changing. I agree. And, you know, the more we talk about it, the more I think I think there really was a Goodfellas effect that hurt 
the Godfather Part Three. Absolutely, I think yep. people were amps. I think people were like, "Yeah, Mafia movies are back, baby!" And then they walk into this, and it's like that life will kill you. I'm like what? No, no. Where that life you. will make you sad. Yeah, it will make you, it will break you, like emotionally break you, not even just kill you. By the way. I was going to ask you the same as that question. This is the same year the Goodfellas comes out. Like you put these two together and there's one that you want to be in and one that you feel like, oh, it's a melodrama. It's an opera. The other one's like a gangster movie. And I yeah. think that's what people wanted. I think you're exactly right. I think you're exactly right. And you know what? I'll just say it. Of the two, I prefer The Godfather Part 3. Wow. Well, of course you do. Now I will say this. <laughs> uh, I will ask you this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go one step further and go, so a movie that came out in 1987 also, I think, had an effect on this movie. Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about The Untouchables, mm. right? And The Untouchables comes out, and it's not the same exact thing, but I noticed there was a moment, and I don't know if it was a subtle nod, but when uh, Andy Garcia comes to Michael's house and he's wearing that beautiful ascot, I think in the middle of the night, when I was impressed that Michael wasn't wearing pajamas, um, he, you know, Michael says, he brought a knife, you brought a gun, and I was like, is that a reference to The Untouchables that Sean Connery speech? was like, you never bring a knife to a gunfight. And I didn't, I was like, is there some sort of little, little nod to each other going on in these two movies? Because it's a very specific idea of like, who brought a knife to a gunfight? Um, <laughs> but, uh, but maybe I'm totally wrong. I mean, it, it seems like it would, that is like a classic line of that movie. And he, he does essentially do it. It just made my ears perk up when I heard it. <laughs> you had a knife, you had a gun. All right. Well, enough of our uh, chatting. Yeah. We got to sit down with uh, Talia Shire, who is absolutely fantastic, like we said, in this movie. And um, I'm excited for you to hear how she approached it originally and, and kind of how her reaction to this new version is. And also, uh, you know, spoiler alert, you're going to get to hear what Talia Shire thinks should be shot up into outer space. Uh, she has a pick to be on the list of 100 best movies. Uh, and I'm excited to talk about that with her as well. You know, I was I was watching the new cut of The Godfather 3 last night, and I was really watching it this time just with an eye of your character. And it really huh. knocked me out to compare how your character just grew so much over these three films, you know, from the, this daughter, this wife that people try to keep things from to a woman literally handing a person a poisoned cannoli. And in a way, being an instigator <laughs> of so much of the drama that happens. Listen, I poison people whenever I cook, whether it's cannoli or not. But that's—I'm not a talented uh, cook. But yes, I think Connie uh, has a, an incredible evolution. And what I noticed in this last cut, I have to tell you, is the symmetry between uh, Connie and Mary, Sophia, and myself. Yeah. We're both the daughters of powerful men, and we want so much to believe. To believe in them, what I think Connie does in this third movie, you know, sometimes when you miss a certain person, you reenact them. So there is a, an aspect of her father in Connie's character, that sort of slick hair. And, you know, it's, it's she's not quite the mother in this last piece. She, she yeah. shades of her dad. Yeah, no, you're right. You have that line even where you tell Andy Garcia, you know, that his character, that Vincent is the only one left in this family with my father's strength. But when you said that line, I was like, actually, no, Connie, you have that strength. Like you're the one in this, you're oh. the one in this movie trying to keep the family together. Like you're the one who I think finds like the loyalty the most important. Well, but it's to keep it together because if if Connie does not, then the reality of her tragic life would be, I think, you know, truth, truth 
truth is tough. You need truth in doses. Uh, Connie could never take the truth of her life because she's been an incredible victim. But in this cut of this movie, when I watched it, I have to tell you, I was quite, quite amazed. There's a real possibility that Michael was out and he would be redeemed. That was very, I don't know if you felt that, but that was like highlighted in this piece. He had had that extraordinary scene, uh, that confession. And all of a sudden, you really thought, wait a minute, this guy does want out. But that resonated, that that sense of possible freedom uh, into the scene with Diane when when Michael and Diane have that, uh, Kay have that lovely time in Sicily. Yeah. It really, it had, it, it, it had this beautiful love that was once between them. But, you know, uh, and the character that does not want this to happen is Connie. She's the one that does not want redemption for, for Michael. He cannot leave this situation. The family cannot right. go straight. And I didn't realize it as strongly in the other cut. And I found that absolutely amazing, you know? Yeah, well, I was actually thinking about, as an actor, how you approach coming back to this character because... You know, Godfather 2 comes out in 74, and then Godfather 3 comes out in 90. There's a bunch of time there where, obviously, you know, you're nominated for uh, Best Supporting Actress in 74 for Godfather, and you, you, uh, you, you've lived with this character. People talk to you about this character, I imagine. It is iconic. And in this time that passes, I'm sure you're thinking about it in a general sense, or people are pitching things to you. And then when you have to come back into it, I know that I have a problem sometimes when I go away in between seasons, like, oh, who was that character? How do I get back into that character? When this time passes, like, are you at all involved in how you want to see this character? Or did you just go in and kind of embrace the way that Francis wanted this character to be? Or how did you get back into that character? I know there's a lot of questions. All you know, what you're saying, what you're saying with your own work is true. How do you have entry and re-entry? Yeah. You know, how how is a a creative human being do you do it? And of course, I think, as you very well know, the first thing you try very hard to do is place yourself in that zone of creative being. You've got to, and then you can be wide open to ideas. In Godfather 3, we all met up again in Napa, and he wanted to know everyone's ideas. We had readings, but he really wanted to know people's thoughts. And because he's incredibly collaborative, and that's the fun of it. It does spark collaboration is exciting. Um, and I kind of said, gee, Francis, I, I, I don't think she's the mother. You know, right. I think she is more, has an odd thing about her father. You know, Interesting. And that's yeah. who she is. She, she misses, she was victimized. A horrible thing happened to her in her life, and for some reason she's held on to the father figure, and that's sort of, again, perfect with Mary, longing to know who her father is, and surely he could never have been a bad guy. So, you know, and he let me do it. So Francis did let me do it, and it was very, very exciting, because every actor, and again, you know this, looks for transformation to their character. It's about transformation, right? But in this one, and again, looking at it before and then, what Paramount did was they invited the actors to see this movie about two months ago. Uh, Diane was there. Al was there. George Hamilton was there. Andy Garcia. And we were, that was it. We were just in a big, dark Paramount theater, many rows apart. 
And this extraordinary experience was taking place. And I could hear Diane crying three rows away from me. I could see, And when we came out, we were all uh, stunned and in awe yeah. because, first of all, I, I felt and everybody felt that the plot was very, very clear. But what had never been there before as much, which I mentioned, was the fact, oh, my goodness, this man, Michael, really, he, he's going to he's going to do it. He is going to yeah. do it. He is going to become redeemed. It was very powerful. It was deeply spiritual. And then the agony to watch him in an endless purgatory at the end, right? Yeah. That, 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 that was breathtaking. No, he didn't do it. And he is never going to leave. I don't know how you felt, but this was like, my God, this man's never going to leave this garden because it's any place in time and space, but it's yeah. hell. You know, it's always so interesting to see like these recuts or revisits of something. And this one feels like yes. it it did something. It didn't just add footage. Right. I think people are always like, here's a remastered thing and here's 30 minutes of scenes that you didn't see. But what this kind of did is I think what you talk about is it refocuses it. And I think it brings it to more of a even dramatic conclusion in in a way like it's it is more solemn and uh, and stark. And and how I, I want to use the word awesome, awful awesomely awful, you know, right, right. I was in awe. I was in awe of where it took me. You know, so much happens to you personally in your family, like you as an actress mm. between like the end of Godfather part two and when everybody got together to film Godfather part three, you know, you get to gain even more like power in Hollywood through the Rocky franchise, which I just, I love your performance in the first film so much. That was also on our Thank AFI you. list. So we also me, have to me too. rave about me it. Me too. So I am, I, I am that that shy woman, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but I was thinking how interesting it is, that, like this film about a family that's at the center of the action. You know, in that gap between Godfather Two and Godfather Three, your whole extended family becomes even more part of the center of the action of like this town of Los Angeles. You know, your nieces, your nephews, and then after even Godfather Three, your son. And I wonder. Like, does has the film and what it says about family changed for you in that time? As it seems to, you know, as your family seems um, to have kind of taken on different aspects of it. Actually, something extraordinary happened to me, which is I remarried uh, during mm. that that interval in that period. A man named Jack Schwartzman, who 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 actually put together, produced a, a movie, and the star recently died. Never say never again, which was the return of of Sean Connery and yes. the James Bond yes. role. My, my husband is my late husband because he passed away some, some years ago, but he was a very dangerous, daring man who enjoyed doing those things, right? So I yeah. went, oh my God. And in a strange way, to replay these roles is very anchoring. So in that interval, I had two more children. So now I had, you know, yours, mine, and ours. We are a family of five. And also what was so bizarre, talk about synchronicity. I got a phone call that we would do Rocky Five at exactly the same time as Godfather Three. <laughs> so I was going back, back I was going back and forth, back and forth, traveling to oh here I was Connie, then I'd go over there and I was yeah. and it was as it was just as if I needed to touch both those characters again. You know, it's very interesting to me. What's, uh, what's rather extraordinary about Francis is he's a drama school major, a theater major. And so he is a man who, who, who has the 25 
hundred years of, of Shakespeare and the Greeks and, you know, so he, he's very steeped in all of that and his works, I think you can feel it, have that kind of uh, epic sense, mythology, it's very textured, it's very full of nuance and he reaches and he uses, I mean, in Godfathers, I, I, I honestly, in, I, when I saw the two at Radio City Music Hall, some years back, just those two. And then again, seeing this one, you, you know, you could see he, he has his foot in, in sort of Shakespeare territory. Or in this one, he's dealing with Oedipus, some guy yeah. trying to make a choice, trying to figure out what happened to him. So, um, but Francis, Francis is that kind of artist. So his works are, are always alive. They never... Um, they never become incidental or minor. They they always have a life force. I mean, I love all of that. And I have kind of a silly question, which I have to ask. Please forgive me. How how does Connie get away with tasting the poisoned cannoli? I, I, I asked that myself this last time. <laughs> uh, I watched it and I said, wow, I'm eating this. How does she do it? Well, I think... Because those, <laughs> she knew, she knew just to taste that little edge. Notice that she overswooned. It looks like she ate a giant piece, but all yeah. she's doing is making all these because mm, she's clever that way. She's pulling a, a fast one. Uh, uh, but I, I, I asked myself that same question anyway. But uh, it's like but, Princess Bride. Uh, you, you, I, you, I you build up resistance. <laughs> I built up a resistance yeah. to my own poison. Oh, my God. Oy, oy. Oy, oy, oy. You know, on this show, we do talk about the best movies of all time. And we're putting together this list that we are literally going to shoot into outer space. And we're talking to people always about what their favorite films are. And I know that you're a very big uh, mm-hmm. film buff. Like, what would be yes. one movie that you would shoot up into outer space that you would give to the aliens to, uh, to use to understand who we are as a, a culture? Ah, well, you know, I do love these movies and uh, the Godfather yeah. movies. They are masterworks. But I will tell you the movie that, I mean, gee whiz, uh, ready for this? Yes. Uh, re- ready? Yes. And I, and I saw this movie when I was pretty young and then kept on seeing it. <laughs> the Red Shoes. Oh, wow. See, I've never seen that. Now, Amy, Michael have you seen that? Powell and Chris. Oh. Yeah, I mean, it's a, huge, it's, a, it's a beautiful romantic musical. I think you'd love it, Paul. Well, it was stunning, and 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 it, it you know it also had an interesting mythology. Here, this poor dancer, great ballet dancer, uh, is trying very hard to have a creative life, but she is torn between her husband, the composer, and whether or not she will be permitted to dance. And so, the the uh, fairy tale of the Red Shoes works so perfectly in this ballet sequence. I've seen it maybe. Um, 500 times, wow. over 500 times. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I love that dilemma, like you, that, that weight of like, am I an artist or am I a, a, a woman, a partner? It's hard to balance. It's very, very hard to balance. And it was very clear in this particular movie. I mean, it's, as you know, it ends tragically, but it, it was a movie of great, great beauty. And I had the privilege of having dinner with the director, Michael Powell. Um, oh, wow. because Francis had invited him over to his own studio at that time. And we talked, just a great filmmaker, but he, he, he spoke to this issue of conflict and he said, yes, how does a woman fully love her husband? And how then is she a dancer? You know, how does that? And I think women, I've been trying to put that one together 
for, and we will continue to do so. It is possible. But, um, but that's what that movie really was about. How are you an artist and how are you uh, uh, your husband's muse? This story just seems like a rare story that is even told in, in film. So I'm, I'm very excited to see that. I can't wait to, uh, please call me after you, because it really is. I mean, I, I mean, it's, by the way, I'm enjoying this conversation. So if I interrupt a little too much, it's because I'm, I'm really stimulated by you two and your love of movies. So forgive me. <laughs> no, it's amazing. We love it. We love having you on. This is uh, absolutely fantastic. And we love watching you in these films because you are on two of the films that we are sending to outer space already, which is, uh, you know, yeah, so you are, you're already going to be uh, meeting the aliens up there, or they're going to be meeting you in your <laughs> amazing performance. Actually, actually, the aliens are in my house every single day, <laughs> and we have all kinds of conversations, and we've been talking about you guys, too. <laughs> yeah, there's one right downstairs waiting for me to come down. Stan well, and I keep saying, wait, wait, just wait. Okay. Well, this has been... Uh, fantastic thank you for giving us some time and uh and and i really really think that this film uh, the re-release of this film uh just continues to grow this trilogy in a way that you know i've i've always been a fan of even the way the re-release where they the first two films are mixed there, there's so many ways you can watch this film and i think uh it just continues to get better and better and there are more things in it and more things that we are ready for I think as you know I, I don't know the revisitation of this movie is always I'm excited that this one was now finally added to the picture uh, the third you're right no it's it's a revisit and it's a rebirth yeah and uh, and, and and it's like I guess alchemy it it, it changes the other two you know yeah. because this mm -hmm. one has is this one Francis was he I really felt it this time he he was saying something extraordinary about uh redemption and one soul you know that that wasn't in those other two and, and is here in this one i can only imagine too uh and you know just putting myself in his shoes that coming back to this film and whenever he started working on this you know 2019 2020 as an older person and seeing your life and, and everything going around you, like you also just approach the editing and the look of this film. Like you're, he's, you all are different people from 1990. So it's also like, there's a different perspective that you can bring as a director to this, which I think actually to this film in particular, really, you know, about legacy and family, it, that it, it's a unique perspective to go back into this film mm -hmm. and kind of uh, the coda. Yeah. I think it's really beautiful. You know, yes, we are a family uh, of directors and actors and people, but please, we're just a circus family. That's what all <laughs> that we do. We do the really dangerous things, and we know we will not drop the other member of the, except sometimes. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but, you know, with my children, who are, who are all very creative, I often tell them about the Sistine Chapel, uh, you know, and the, the finger of God and man in that extraordinary painting on the, yeah. you'll notice there's a space between the fingers of God and man. And that is what makes it great. You know, looking for that, that's an artful and extraordinary statement. And I think what Francis was doing in this one, he was going back to find that space, you know, the, find yeah. that space between God and man. And, and that, cause that is what he is born to do because he's that kind of artist. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for giving us a chunk of your day. Oh, please. And, and I'm a film buff, too. So I <laughs> admire that you saw 100 films together. Can I give you one little tip that I do? I tell my children. Yeah. To do? I mean, yeah. forgive me for going on. 
But I, I love dance movies. And I started to find, you know, you can only do some of what I'm about to suggest uh, on DVDs or, or uh, you, you can do it on certain other uh, things. But I watch certain movies in slow motion. Oh, um, interesting. All right. Motion. I'm sharing this with you sort of off the cuff. But it is if you love movies, you know, that you could slow it down and say, oh, my God, look at that sequence. Oh, how many cuts did it take for Barbara Stanwyck to really walk across that room? But it is another way of loving movies. And you love movies and so do I. Well, I, you know, you, it's funny you say that because I love sometimes watching a film with the sound off because I think oftentimes we forget like it doesn't all have to be exposition it is the visual pictures that we are looking at too and there you can get something so out of it there's a couple of DVDs that have come out where you can just listen to the score over the film and it's uh, it's fantastic I think they Actually, uh, Soderbergh did that for Raiders of the Lost Ark, and it was really, it was a whole different experience uh, just making a track where you're just listening to the the sound, you know, the the music. It's, what a brilliant thing to do. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yes, it is exciting. I love music, so and I, and I do appreciate a mix. So I didn't realize I could just sort of listen to the score with a movie, but it is very, very exciting to do. Well, now I know that we're. I don't want to. I don't want to go off on a bad note, but I'm going to ask you a question, and you may think less of me. But have you watched the Step Up movies, especially Step Up Three? If you like dance movies, it's the greatest. Uh, it's one of the greatest dance movies of all time. It's very modern, obviously, but uh, Step Up Three, I think, might blow your mind if you've not seen it. You know, obviously, I'm still watching Singing in the Rain. Right. But I, that's a shame. Shame on me. Shame on me. Now I'm going to watch all three. Uh, well, I well, will say there's a scene in there that is very, very Gene Kelly. It's like a one take shot that I think Gene Kelly would have looked at step up three and applauded. And there's also a really big wet scene if you're just into the water. I, should I start? I'll do that. I mean, I, maybe I watched a bit of it with my granddaughter um, because I was trying to show her about Busby Berkeley. But <gasps> yes, I'm going to watch it. And then we should call each other up and share and, movies. No, sir. And thank you for saying the words Busby Berkeley and, because he is oh, my all-time wonderful. favorite. I adore him. I really? Adore him. Yeah. Incredible. Once I was asked, like, if I could interview any person living or dead, who would I interview? And I said Busby Berkeley. And then like seven years went by and I was asked it again and I couldn't think of who to say. And I said, I thought Busby Berkeley again. And I realized that I'd just given the same answer twice in the same <laughs> decade. But it's because I believe it so much. I would just love to sit down and talk to him about everything in his mind. Oh, no, he was he was actually well, you're right, because he understood formations and he kept pushing it. And and of course, I've watched those uh, those sequences in slow motion. Try that in slow motion. You're going right. to love it. And I'll watch I'll watch the movies you told me to watch. Step up 3D. And yeah, don't don't feel like you have to complete the trilogy. Just embrace that one. And I think you'll <laughs> be happy. It's really the greatest. <laughs> I mean, you can even just re, like fast forward it for the dance scenes. The yes. dance scenes are just incredible. Ooh. <laughs> All right. Well, this is great. And uh, we, will, uh, great. we will. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. No, I, I thank you. And the aliens are downstairs waiting <laughs> for me to come down. So I, I'm, I'm going to go because they need me. Uh, okay. Of course. Of course. <laughs> All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. All right, Paul. Well, this has been so fun. I'm glad that we got pulled back in and that we pulled everybody else in with us. Um, thank you for listening to our bonus mini episode. And join us next week because we're going to be talking about The Farewell.
Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well... Oh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.